Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Twins Talk Theater. Today, we have somebody who neither of us actually have met or know. Leslie Sears is with us. I know her through the opera stage management world because it's a small world. Um, I've known her through Washington National Opera, where she has worked as an ASM uh, with Tracy Hoffman, who was on here, and a number of other people that I've worked with. She's also what is the title? You're a member of the AGMA Board of Governors and a candidate yep. for uh, Eastern At-Large Council for Actors Equity. Um, we're obviously on like all the same stage management Facebook groups all the time. So it's a name I've seen all the time. So I was like, you know what, let's get to know Leslie and bring her on the podcast. So that's about all of the biography I have on you, which is, means you get to tell us the rest. So <laughs> welcome to our podcast. Thank you for, for joining us. To start out, what... So the, Tell us the stuff that I don't know. How did you get into theater and how did you become a stage manager? Sure. First of all, I just want to say that that intro is so typical of how I know so many stage managers <laughs> and I love it. So I'll be talking about someone and my husband will say, how do you know that? I'm like, oh, well, they've worked with this person that I worked with or they worked <laughs> with that company. And like, we're online all the time and I've just, you know, never met right. them in person. It's just gotten increasingly common. Um, it is, yeah. I, like, I love I it. Like I should know this person. I see their picture all the time. I know she has a dog. Like I feel like I know her. So, and then actually, these podcasts, like all friend people on Facebook, because we did a podcast with them. And then sometimes I'm like, wait, how do I know that person? Oh, I talked to him right. for an hour. I've just never actually met him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how I got into theater? I'm from San Diego, and. When I was growing up, my dad was working at the, uh, that time it was the San Diego Civic Theater and the convention center that it was attached to downtown. And my mom had worked in theater. She had been a box office and subscriptions manager, which is how the two of them met when they were in school. And she had, she had retired and gone on to do trade show work and marketing for high-speed cameras. Um, so she traveled a ton, which meant that we did a lot of a lot of nights at dad's office when when shows were happening or load-ins were happening or texts were happening. Mm -hmm. And so from a very early age, I was watching Broadway tours or actor tours on those tiny little four-inch black and white cameras. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just it was amazing. And at some point, the production manager, the amazing Carolyn Satter, said, you know, would Leslie like to watch from my office? And her office was backstage. Like, you could sit in her office and open the door and see everything that was happening backstage. Wow. But it was also a safe place to, you know, stash a child. <laughs> uh, and I was hooked. I was, I was just mesmerized. And as I got older... Uh, I got to shadow stage managers, you know, sit at the calling station with them, sometimes follow around ASMs. And so I knew it was a real job. And I was really blessed that both of my parents knew this was a real job. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of people don't get parental support. And mm -hmm. I always did. Um, they, they pushed pretty hard when I was like, I want to do this. And they're like, really? I sat through a lot of load in hours. 
they're <laughs> like, let's see if she really wants to. So I had this picture of, of touring in particular, which I love because you got to see these communities that were people who are working together so closely and you go from joking hangout backstage and the jokes of people who've been working together a long time and then you're on mm-hmm. you know that level of of efficiency was it's just magical i loved it um but i so i did theater in high school i didn't ever do outside community theater when i got to college i was actually really surprised at how much how much other theater my classmates had done. I went to Boston University. I got my BFA in stage management. And all of my friends and classmates were like, yes, I've, you know, interned at this local theater and I've done this local theater and I'm on this. I was like, I really just did. I did high school theater and I sat backstage at the Civic a lot. (laughs) That's Uh, my experience. (laughs) A lot. Like I did a lot of watching. Um, and let's see from there, I went to Boston University, which is a fantastic school and something that I didn't appreciate until later is that they're connected to the Boston University Opera Institute. Mm -hmm. I had never had any intention of working on opera. Um, I had gone to the marvelous, you know, open student dress rehearsals of San Diego Opera. Like I knew the Mm -hmm. scale and the level of professionalism and production values. I mean, they're they're beautiful things to watch, but it was never something that I felt compelled to to do do myself. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of us say that. Um, Uh And then I I was in school and I got assigned to to be a PA on Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream, which is quite the introduction to opera. It's not easy music, but it's in English and it's a story I knew. So it was, there's this one aspect that I'm uncomfortable with and I'm learning these new forms of paperwork and everything else is familiar. Um, And so I did more and more operas through school. Um, I did an internship my junior year with Boston Lyric Opera and Darren Brannon was, he was the stage manager for that and was phenomenal and gracious. And he also came from a theater background first before he was an opera stage manager. So he knew where I was coming from and he could anticipate what would be weird and where I would need a little extra direction. That's really and, cool. And taught me the ins and outs. Yeah. Having gracious teachers. Um, makes such a difference and I think mm-hmm. also I was very lucky that it was it's like the easiest opera you could do Jonathan Dove's flight which if you don't know it it's a group of people who are trapped in an airport and so there wasn't a lot to do so there was a lot of opportunity for talking and explaining and saying let's look at the other show that's running right now which is Eugene Onegin mm-hmm. um and I ended up updating paperwork and run sheets for them as a way to get my head around all this extra opera stuff. Mm-hmm. And lots of paperwork, lots of paperwork. Um, so I got to test, you know, the really small version, you know, the half page run sheet for flight. And they're like, great, if you understand it now, extrapolate for this giant thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and after that, that was the last show of the season. 
And I was there as they were looking at what do we do for next season? And I was local. I was coming up on my senior year of college. And they asked if I'd be interested in ASM in the full season, which at that time was three shows. And we talked about it. I did a lot of negotiating with school. <laughs> All right, because you would have had to. Um, and and ended up saying... <laughs> Yeah, I would have had to, I rearranged my, my class schedule. Um, I turned a lot of things into directed studies. I, I just really went through my syllabus and I really had to push and talk to the, um, be one of the things that makes BU great is they do a ton of productions. So students work on a show every quarter. So to go to school and say, I know you might be working on assignments, but please take me out of the rotation it throws a lot off, mm-hmm. but I negotiated hard for myself and what I thought that I needed. And I ended up taking my AGMA card and doing three shows that season at BLO. And then I was there for a couple seasons afterwards. Um, so that's, that's sort of the short version of how I got into it and launched from school to the professional world. Did you that's stay- amazing as an ASM through those extra seasons, or did you move up to a stage manager or calling stage manager, anything like that? No, I ASM'd. Nice. I ASM'd all the way through, which is, which is my joy. <laughs> I was going to say, have, do you, have you called an opera or do you really just prefer ASMing? Cause I know like Tracy just prefers ASMing. She like mm-hmm. never wants to call a show. <laughs> no, I do. I do call shows. Um, which I think is important. I think, well, there's a lot of back and forth, but I think it's important to be well-rounded as a stage manager because it mm-hmm. impacts how you how you interact with others on your team and how you view situations. I think it's really easy to get tunnel vision mm-hmm. if you're only in the same position all the time. And being able to break out of that is is just crucial to be able to problem solve in the moments and look at the big picture. So I call operas. I, I run backstage for operas. I call plays. It's very rare that I get to assist on straight plays. Um, but I would love it if I could do more of it. Um, it's just really, it's just really rare that people want to budget for an equity ASM for shows. Yeah, that's very, very true. It's been a while since I've done straight plays or if I do it for like a friend or, you know, a passion project with somebody. And mm-hmm. usually then it's where, you know, I am the stage manager and assistant stage manager, and the, yeah. you know, because it's a showcase you do the one. or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's how it is. So going on to that topic, I've had multiple conversations with people that say that you're either an opera stage manager or a theater stage manager, which obviously I disagree with because I've done both. And we've talked to a number of people on here that do both and you do both. So how is it for you to go back and forth between opera and straight shows? And do you think that there is a distinction? Like if you do opera stage management, you can't do anything else. I, I would 100% disagree with that. I would say you do have to have a mental check. And depending on what level of opera you do, it might be really strange to go into a theater setting for the first time. If you've only ever worked at large opera companies where you have a, you mm-hmm. know, a full team of four and a rehearsal mm-hmm. planning department and an AD that deals with blocking and artistic maintenance notes to be thrown into a straight play 
where you, the stage manager, are doing all of those things and you only have the support of an intern, yeah, that's a wildly different job. But as long as you know that that's what you're going in for and you're ready for that, of course you can do both. <laughs> it's very, very of true. Course you, of course you can. You know, I, But I think that's true about most things. Do you know what you're walking into? What are your expectations? And are you setting yourself up for success? I think if if an opera stage manager walked into a theater for the first time and waited for someone else to make the schedule and waited for someone else to take the blocking and then got to performances and waited for someone else to give the theater notes, you know, the maintenance notes to actors, I I don't know that that would be received very well. <laughs> It would be a very tainted process for very everyone I think there would be a lot of people saying, what is happening with this stage manager? When really that can all be avoided by talking about in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think stage managers also, I've found it very rare for people to give direct feedback about... To, to stage managers or... To, to me as a stage manager in terms of this is what we normally expect in the moment. This is how other people have done it. Can you please do it this way? We need to mm-hmm. do more of this. Sometimes you'll hear it afterwards. Um, but as a freelancer, when you're going from theater to theater, there's not... Well, first of all, there's not a lot of oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> people hear about things when there are problems but don't have context. And so it's just an interesting career development thing. So someone might go into a situation and not realize what they're not doing. That's, um, it's also them telling you, I guess what you're saying about what's expected of you is one thing. I'll get used to working at a company where I know what's expected of me. And then I'll go to a new company or, Uh you know, somewhere that I haven't been in two years. And all of a sudden I forget that it's my job to be the child wrangler or that I'm supposed to input stuff in a certain way and, you know, in the calendar (laughs) thing. And I'm like, well, how am I supposed to know this? And, you know, they forget to tell me because they, you know, don't think to tell the stage manager or new stage manager what to do. And I don't know to ask because I don't know that it's different. I just assume everything's the same. And so that does create a lot of problems. And especially, like you said, when you jump from yeah. and um, gig to gig, it's like, no, wait, I know I've been here, but that was two years ago. I have no idea how this works anymore. <laughs> What's changed now? Um, and yeah. there are some theaters that that are really great about intentionally staffing so that someone on the team has been there before. You have a little bit of a through line. Um, and as a stage manager, being humble about whatever role you're in, who is the person who knows the most about this? Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes that's the PA and sometimes that's the intern and you go how on earth do I find this do I send this do I who answers this question and just availing ourselves of whatever information is present Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's the hard thing about jumping back and forth I think it's less about skills and more about expectations Um, and separate from that just the sheer logistics of of timelines, of opera companies planning further out, theater companies being a lot more touch and go. Um, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say that's a big one was, because I usually, if, I usually have a house position, but I don't hire people more than a month or two ahead of a show really starting, mm-hmm. where Cindy will have a contract six months a year ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes for opera, you know, I can say, you know, I know what I'm doing a year and a half from now and I have gaps that 
I intentionally leave to fill in with theater. Um, and I find that useful because circumstances change, mm-hmm. right? There are different times and I'm like, now I would like to be home. Now I would like to be <laughs> be in this city. Yes, I would very much like that job, except that I haven't seen my husband in four months. So I'm going to decline. Uh, those kinds of things. True story. Um, <laughs> I mean, there are real things. You can be looking at a calendar in advance and saying, you know, I would really like to take that job, but it'll be the third out of town thing in a row. And is it worth it? Is it not? Do I trust that something else closer to home will pop up last minute? There are there are frequently last minute things. The question is, are they last mm-hmm. minute things that you're interested in for whatever right. reason? Right. That, Financially or a person you want to work with or, you know, geography or just a is a big like. one for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I had an offer for another contract right before the one that I'm supposed to be on right now. And I really wanted to do it. And Matt was like, no, you'll be gone for five and a half months straight if you take it. Mm-hmm. That's just not, you know, that's not going to happen. So I was like, no, you have a good point. Like, as much as I really <laughs> want to do the show, I guess I can spend time with you. But <laughs> And look what that led to. Now you're stuck here forever. <laughs> it's true. Now I'm never leaving this apartment. <laughs> Could have been stuck out here in California with me. I know. It was so close. It was so like close. four or five days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you ever find yourself like in an opera trying to, or I guess it would go the other way in a, in a theater show, like automatically starting to do opera paperwork or does your mind completely reset and be like, okay, now this is what we're working on now. And you just kind of dismiss all the like opera ness that usually happens in a rehearsal room. Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. I think I revert back to what I learned first. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I will always, you know, a theater, the way that I learned to make and to use theater run sheets is always going to influence how I make my who, what, where's. Mm -hmm. That's never going away. Um, But at the same time, the the precision of timings from opera and all the way that we use that Mm -hmm. from the beginning of the process absolutely carries over into my theater work. And people on my team will be like, why are you taking 15 minute timings at the first read through? (laughs) I do that. What is happening? I'm like, well, what else am I going to do? Like not necessarily if I'm the stage manager trying to, you know, read stage directions but if I'm the ASM of course I'm gonna be looking at a stopwatch <laughs> like why not take that time it's it's free I'm sitting at a table I'm not doing five million other things yet yeah, um, I also <laughs> find it useful because I jump back and forth uh just being backstage between the two and during opera I'd have the timings in my run sheet and so I'd know hey I have five minutes to go to the bathroom Whereas yeah. a musical or a straight play, it's like, I don't know, it depends on how fast they go and if they skip lines and I don't know, she has a monologue. Mm-hmm. That's how long you have. <laughs> so you're getting spoiled with opera, Stacey. I know. Well, I quit it all together, <laughs> so we're all good. <laughs> I The thing for me is um, blocking because I mm-hmm. was trained to do regular theater and, and musicals, you know, and it's just in me to take blocking as a stage manager. And I remember the first time that I actually saw a big, a big house, I was a PA at Cincinnati Opera. 
and it, it was really the first time that I'd walked into a situation where you had like a union crew there for rehearsal and all the ASMs and the PA and the AD. And I was like, well, if the AD is taking all the blocking and you already know what's happening because you it's a remount and you have all the crew, like, what do you do as a stage manager? You're just sitting there staring at it because like you're not taking blocking. You already know who's entered and exiting where. You already know where the scene changes are. I was like, don't you get kind of bored? So I still take blocking even when I have an AD just because yeah. it's habit and it does make it much easier later on when I'm, you know, trying to figure out where my light cues are going or how to call it or whatever. But um, right. I just can't not take blocking when I'm sitting in a rehearsal. It just seems weird not to do it. So, yeah, it took a while to to sort of phase down the blocking I take. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and just to go, okay, let me choose in this moment what it's going to be. Because obviously it still has to be all the prop and costume tracking and all the entrance right. exit. Um, and getting my brain to focus on that. And sometimes everything else will go on too, especially if I know that I'm going to be walking roles or we're doing, co- mm. you know, we're doing cover mm-hmm. stages and all of that. But also just to keep skills sharp, because when I go back to st- what what's happened in the past few years is that I assist on beautiful big operas and then I go do tiny plays where it's literally me and a non-equity intern. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> being able to multitask and take blocking without thinking is something that I really have to keep sharp. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, chorus rehearsals come through and it's if I'm not taking down all the backstage chorus stuff, if it's one of those shows where the chorus goes on and then they're on for 45 minutes, mm-hmm. I absolutely work on my chorus blocking. Like those, <laughs> that's the best mental practice. Yeah. I'm like, I'm being paid to sit people. in this room anyway. Right. Why not? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And like you said, you then, you know, if, especially if you have to walk an essential part um, for principals later on, then you just know yeah. what their blocking is. Yeah, that's very smart. I was supposed to, yeah, I usually I think... call shows, but I was supposed to ASM this next show. And I was kind of excited about it because, like you said, it's a whole different part of my brain that I don't usually use. And mm-hmm. I was like, tried to remind myself what to do as an ASM and what the ASM paperwork is versus the stage manager's paperwork. And it's just, you know, trying to keep both skill sets sharp. Yeah. And I think there's also, you know, there's moments of moments of shame that haunt your whole career. The things that you tell me, yeah, one of the first, one of the shows that first season when I got my card was, um, was Madam Butterfly. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was the props ASM and I was doing so well on all of the props and everything except for Suzuki's cushion. <laughs> Suzuki's, cause I was just like, you know, I just have to know where the props are, you know, get them on stage with the right people and preset all the right time. And I was so, I was loving all of my ASM paperwork, but anytime in rehearsal when they'd be like, we're going to stop and go back to here. And man, I could just never get Suzuki's cushion in the right place on stage. <laughs> I don't I'm think mortified. we have a for her. Stacy doesn't like Bohem or um, Butterfly because of we had an altar when we did it, and, you know. And, and mm-hmm. our director, of course, wanted like traditional like Japanese altar stuff. And we're in like Santa Barbara, California, where you yeah. don't really get traditionally Japanese altar yeah. stuff. No, there's one little Japanese market on the way to Galito, and they did not sell <laughs> the appropriate things. But. I mean, that's where I learned about Little Tokyo and started spending time there. But every (laughs) altar I found, she didn't like, but she couldn't tell me what she wanted. I had like eight different sets of dolls. 
little statues, and she didn't like any of them. She wanted a bell. Like, it was more like a Tibetan bell, but she wanted it to ring at a certain key. And I was like, that's just not how this works. Yeah. Yeah. So the the Suzuki cushion was my moment of like, I can never again hold up a rehearsal process because I don't know where a cushion goes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just go back to that. Mine is... I think I was just telling this to somebody earlier today, which is funny because it was also Butterfly. It was my first real opera that was not a new work because I've done a lot of like newer or reimagined pieces and not traditional operas. And so I was like, oh, I know what I'm doing. Butterfly should be fine. And I didn't study the music or know the music as well as I should Mm. have. And I walk into rehearsal and of course the director's done it 10 times and the Suzuki and the, and the Chocho-san have done it together five times. You know, like everyone had that, that show memorized inside and out. And the director, as directors do, would just give you like two, two words and everybody would Mm -hmm. know exactly where they're going and one it's in a language that I don't speak and I didn't have any familiarity with and I didn't know the music well enough so I would spend half of rehearsal those first two days just like flipping pages and trying to look at the the conductor and figure out where the hell we were and it was mortifying because I was like I need to know this better like I just assumed it would be like the new operas that I'd worked on where we're all building this together, you know, and it was right. It's been 10 years and it's still horrible for me to think about that because I'm like, (laughs) I will never walk into a rehearsal room, not knowing the music almost as well as singers, you know, like if a director says a line, like I need to know where that line is, who's singing it, what's on stage and not have to spend 10 minutes flipping through my book because it's embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) And I was in Little Tokyo looking for statues. Yeah, Everybody it was the had same, fun on that show. Same butterfly. <laughs> Scary show. But I love that you gave that story because I think I think in all of our lives you just have this moment where you're like, okay, well, I'm never doing that again. Not right. making that mistake. That's and I think we don't talk enough about them. Yeah. And it's no, like, I, yes, this is a thing I did and I learned from it. And here mm-hmm. we are. Mm-hmm. I'm still embarrassed about it, but we moved on. And now. Because yeah. <laughs> I love afterwards when I see audience and they're like, that show was perfect. And I'm like, oh, nope, was not perfect, but I'm glad it looked good to you. But I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Thank yeah. you, Karen. <laughs> we almost killed a couple people backstage, but good. <laughs> but we're all good now. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to talk with you about is I think theater people in general um, are much more politically active than non-theater people. And maybe that's just because of the people that I'm around, but you are very politically active. And as I mentioned earlier, you are involved in AGBA and in equity. What, what made you do that? Has it always (laughs) been a passion of yours or was there a moment in your life where you're like, you know what? I, I want this to be better. I want to have better representation. I need to step up and do something. I think there's a couple levels of it. Um, First off, there is a story about my grandma who might be apocryphal, but also might be 100% true. Where (laughs) She was was visiting her hometown of Albany and there was a yard sign, you know, a political Mm -hmm. yard sign out. And she got out of the car and like raced up to someone at the house and was like, what? Who are the candidates and what are the issues? (laughs) And I heard that story growing up and we were mortified. (laughs) 
mortified. Grandma's embarrassing everybody. Grandma's embarrassing everyone. And like, (laughs) who cares about this election on the other side of the country? Again, we're from California. Um, And so like, (laughs) I just, I flash back to that and just go, yeah. And what do I do now? I knock on doors for political campaigns. Um, <laughs> this is how I spend my free time. <laughs> this is this is what I do now. Um, so no, it was not always part of my life. Um, for a long time, my what now I would call my political activism um, was done through the church, through the social justice lens, looking at tangible actions. What do people need right now that we can provide them with? or connect them to? What are the systems that keep people in this place and in these positions of need? Um, And there's a a wonderful uh, conference that happens every couple of years called the Justice Conference um, that really broadened my thinking into into the systems of inequity and started looking at the political aspects of things. Brian Stevenson, who just had a movie about his life, uh, the Just Mercy movie, if you saw it, he was a speaker that, that sort of just blew my mind in terms of things that I that felt inaccessible or unconnected to me. Um, mm-hmm. And for theater and opera, the first time I got actively involved in something was the AGMA negotiations with Boston Lyric Opera. I wasn't working there anymore. I didn't have contracts going forward, but an email went out saying we need input on the contract from production staff members who's available. And I had some strong feelings. Uh, (laughs) I know that's a shock that stays under some strong feelings on things. I was Um, trying really hard not to comment, but (laughs) especially from a production aspect. Um, viewpoint though because so much of it is actor singer driven but yes yes well, because we also we know that we know the contract um, mm-hmm. and, and we know what is permissible or forbidden contracts and we understand that that is a starting place for employers employers are always welcome to go above and beyond and do better mm-hmm. um, always That's fantastic. Um, But we're very aware of the limitations of the contract or what we perceive as abuses of the contract. Mm -hmm. And we had finished up a difficult season and I was looking for an outlet. And someone said, yeah, all of those thoughts that you had, this is the place. And Boston's a really interesting AGMA town because at the time, BLO is an AGMA company and Boston Ballet is an AGMA company, um, but there's essentially no crossover between the two and BLO folks just aren't, at that time, were not particularly involved in the union. Um, so it was an open field for anyone who wanted to be involved. So I sent in my thoughts, I sat at the negotiating room and a couple of my things made it into the contract. Wow. Which was an amazing feeling. And yeah. just knowing that had I not brought that up, that would not be there. I mean, that's the best motivation to, to get people to show up, to be able yeah. to really say to them and know that it's true. You have to share your thoughts for anything to change. And I think all of organizing is, is the theory of change. 
Mm-hmm. Right? What is the thing you're unhappy about right now? What action can I do to fix it? How can I look at solutions? And I think stage managers are, I think we are inherently good at that. Our job is to look at structures and systems and what are our working conditions and and how can we shape them. And also we sit back and do a lot of listening and observing and sometimes hearing what can be conflicting points of view or competing interests and we still have to find a way forwards. All the time. Yeah, because you're the one in rehearsal listening to what the singers are talking about on breaks or behind you. And then you're sitting mm-hmm. there in a room with the, um, the company, the staff, the people who are making the decisions and you're trying to negotiate between the two of them and being like, yeah, I, I see it from your point of view, but I also see it from the singer's point of view because I'm yeah. sitting here in rehearsal with them. So yeah, you're right. Yeah, like, and, we, and we have firm best? deadlines. Like we have to come up with solutions. Like there's time for big blue sky thinking about let's put a pin in this but there's also what do we need to do right now? Um, and I love that, but I also love that like when you read a rule book and something jumps out at you, you can go, what is the story behind that rule? <laughs> I know, I was just thinking, what happened? <laughs> I was thinking off the record, I want to talk to you about this because the, I think BLO is about to go into negotiations again and I have been a part of, there's a group of us <laughs> Uh, that have done a couple of Boston shows together that have all been talking and, and pooling together all of our thoughts about yes. what we're to see moving forward. Yeah. So I want to, I want to see what, you know, I'm familiar with that contract. So I'd love to talk to you about it. Oh yeah. It's, and it's a really empowering thing. Um, mm-hmm. And right after, and so that shift happened, that negotiation happened as I was transitioning into equity work. Um. And equity, it took me a few years to get involved in governance um, because I was working on the LORT contract, which is a mature contract, which certainly has issues, but a lot less than smaller ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just, I wasn't particularly involved. And then I got involved in some other levels of contracts and again, had opinions, found myself to the negotiating room um, (laughs) and was able to see things change because of things that I brought up. Um, Some were easy asks that we just needed to have written down in the contract where you're like, this is how we all do it. Can we just please write down that this is okay? Interesting. Just like make it official. Can we just make it official? Um, I've never thought about it. Really really things like, I think for that negotiation, um, it's like the easy ask was at the time, costume fittings could only happen during rehearsals or directly adjacent to before or after. Mm-hmm. But on that contract, most of the time it was evening rehearsals. It was like seven, you know, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. No one wants to do a costume fitting at 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. And depending on the show, you might get one person during rehearsal or might not. And your costume designer is also working for jobs. And it was like, can you please just put in the book that before or after rehearsal or mutual convenience. <laughs> or if people agree on it, let exactly. them do it. If they both agree to meet at noon, because that's what people were doing anyway. And then occasional, you know, someone new to the contract would be like, well, we can't do it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we understand the book. So it's things like that. Like we're, we're doing this because this is what makes sense for the show and our systems. Can we please just write it down? Um, so some things are really easy. 
Um, and instead of being endlessly frustrated by them, you find the right moment to bring it up and make the change happen. And then fix them. Yeah. And then you fix them. Or you bring it up and discover that there's actually a lot of baggage and a lot of reasoning behind things that you didn't know, which changes how you view things. I mean, I love that process too. What's an example of of one of those? Yeah. Do you have one? Oh, you're putting me on the spot. Um, (laughs) Kind of. Yeah, we do that. I don't have an easy one to talk about. I don't have anything specific, but what makes me think about that is you, you come up with an idea and you're like, oh, this is a great idea. And then, like you said, you, you get a million reasons why it's not that you never even thought of. And then you right. can go back to your group and be like, oh, th- so we talked about it. And this is really why it can't happen. But right. The it's unintended consequences of that. Yeah. That you don't think about, especially when you're in the moment and your sole focus is one event. Uh, mm-hmm. You're talking about making changes. And what just occurred to me is you're talking about Lort Theater. And so to me, one of the big differences, well, there's a lot of them, obviously, between AGMA and equity is AGMA negotiates per mm-hmm. um, per per company. Individual employer, yeah. And equity negotiates, as you said, with a Lort contract or with the production contract, which is a contract but can be pretty much used by anybody across the country, depending on like the size of your theater and whatnot. What are the big differences there? Because when you go to the negotiating table for a Lort Theater, you now have to think about, I would think, every Lort Theater as opposed to just the one specific theater you're at. Whereas Boston Lyric or any other opera company, you're making these changes, but it's just for this one particular company at this theater. To me, that would be a little bit easier because you know what this group of people needs or what, you know, this chorus once or what this venue actually calls for. Yeah, it's really interesting, the difference between negotiating for groups of employers versus mm-hmm. individual employers, which is what it comes down to mm-hmm. um, and what you're talking about. And they're very, they're very different. Um, I do like that you can tailor things, right, specifically to circumstances in individual contracts. hmm um, but at the same time, in order to do that, there's a lot less cover if you're bringing up issues and di- having difficult conversations about th- about change you want to see, <laughs> right? If Because when LORT or NEAT or COST or any of the touring contracts go into negotiation, surveys go out to every single person who has worked on that contract and they send in their thoughts and it goes through all of the equity committees have their input and proposal selection goes through all of the various proposals, and then that goes to the negotiating team. And it can be hard to track down this request came from this specific person. I see. So it's easier for people to say what they want to change because there's no like... There's a lot less risk of blowback. Yes. Yeah. Um, whereas with... And I think one of the key things for what I consider a successful first negotiation step for me at BLO all those years ago is that I didn't have contracts <laughs> with them for the right. next year. <laughs> um, I had work somewhere else lined up. So I could be as blunt and as aggressive as I needed to be. I was young. There was not a lot of strategy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> back on young Leslie. And I think, oh, girl, 
<laughs> Maybe you should have went through that, didn't you? Um, <laughs> uh, so it's it's a very different approach, and so Agma on the Agma side, um, it's much more tailored. So Agma has right. We've got our our eleven different areas of the country that all have their area committees, mm-hmm. um, and so when contract comes up those area committees are the ones who are experts on that contract and they know who's worked with them but it's all much more targeted Um, Mm -hmm. and so you how how specifically people want to talk about things can vary depending on personality or did they have work lined up or what are their other options? Is there fear of retaliation? Is there not? How free are we? And again, because the contract is the minimum, there are some places where if you've got great labor check-ins every year to be able to talk about things between contract negotiations. So tensions or frustrations aren't you know, building, building, building for three years, mm-hmm. able to say, hey, you know, these are the issues that came up on this show. Can we address them for the future? And then hopefully you, when by the time you get to negotiations, you've solved past problems and it's not just an unburdening of grievances, um, but you get to a point where things aren't a surprise. That makes but that is a very a healthy... Yeah, that's a very healthy situation. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I, don't, I wish that happened more often than I think it does. But yeah, it requires a lot of good intent and open communication and honesty, and you have to have that on both sides for that to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's good and bad. I think there is. I think targeting to individual companies is wonderful but i also sometimes like the pressure of being able to say you know these three companies can do it and let's pull up that fourth one a little yeah let's just stretch let's use you know public pressure in a good way not pushing anyone (laughs) beyond what they can um but the larger the group is and especially geographically um the, har- the harder it is to get things done, but being able to individually look at, you know, what are your sources of funding? What are your rehearsal spaces? What, do, as we, you know, as we on the labor side say, you know, we want more jobs, more money. Okay, realistically, how many dressing rooms do you have? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you have are we at capacity? Yeah. Are we, what does that mean? Yeah, I feel like um, that's one that, because I, I don't negotiate contracts. I don't work in many union houses or anything like that. But when I have worked in union houses, the the temperature being set at a certain temperature or how many dressing rooms you have to have so many feet from the stage. And sometimes it's like, yeah, Mm -hmm. but this theater just doesn't have that. But we want to get better actors. So we want to get some union contracts, but we can't always follow all the rules. But they're like, yep, that's just the contract. And it's like... Okay, but, but really I think this is I think this is something that comes to, I think a lot of times theaters will use those things as an excuse not to pursue equity contracts. Mm-hmm. When what they equity or agma contracts, what I think they should do is go to the union and say, we can uphold everything in the contract except for this. We don't have a shower in the building. 
and can we can't we afford to put one in. And we can't put one in, um, but we think we can do everything else. And, and those are concession requests. And depending on whether you're talking about AGMA or equity, there are, there are groups in each that consider those concession requests. Um, <laughs> But a lot of times companies just say no, and then they'll say, well, it's too difficult to have a union contract, when mm-hmm. in fact they have not taken the step of fully looking at it. To try to actually make it happen. To try yeah. and make it happen. Because we want union jobs. <laughs> but yeah. we want to make sure that people are safe and that workplaces are sanitary. <laughs> and a lot of times what happens then is people will reach out to other people who have worked in that house and are familiar with it and say, hey, you've been in those dressing rooms. What's it like? And they'll say, yeah, they're, you know, they're cramped, but they're fine. There's no shower, but let's look at the show. If it's a show that requires full body paint and acrobatics, yeah, not great. <laughs> if you're in contemporary clothes and it's a one-hour opera, probably fine. Um, moral of the story, always ask the union. Yeah, I didn't know they had a concession thing. I never even thought about that. I thought it was kind of all or nothing, but it makes sense because you're negotiating for such a wide range of things that, yeah, you, you yeah. know, just like, there's so much, there's so much yeah. you can't control. And theaters yeah. were, you know, so many theaters in this country were built a hundred years ago, 120 years ago now, because I keep forgetting that we're in 2020. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's, there are things that are different. And, and it's expensive to renovate buildings. We know that. Um, yeah. So I just think it's always worth asking. And so now when directors or producers say to me, you know, we can't do it because of the union, my first question is always, oh, who did you talk to? Yeah. Are you sure that's true? Like, did you go to the right place? Because I get it. Sometimes it's hard to find the right person. I, 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 <laughs> I understand that. But also, if there's a way to make it union, I would like to do that. Mm-hmm. What you're saying about uh, healthy organizations and and talking during the season or at the end of every se- season and not letting tensions build up. To me, it's also work. And I, I think some people are afraid of that or they yeah. get to the end of a season and they're just like so over it that they're like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to do anything. I want to take my, my break before the next season. And so unfortunately, I think that gets in the way often because I know I've hit that at the end of season, mm-hmm. you know, where I'm like, no, I don't want to sit and have this conversation with you because I'm so angry about what just happened. I don't want right. to talk to you. So I think it is, it's healthy. It's hard. It's going to take work. It's going to be difficult at times. But like you said, like that's what needs to happen. And I think that's so cool. Just it's part of why I like doing postmortems, even though some people don't like the word for that, because to me, yeah. that's a way to just kind of get it out all on the table. And I don't want to do a postmortem where, some, where someone just says, these are all the things I think you did great. I'm like, okay, well, tell me the things that I didn't do great, because how am I going to make right. it better next time if I don't know? I think yeah, you mentioned that, that earlier development too. Question. Yeah, that people aren't upfront or honest, kind of what you're saying about, you know, with telling you what they want or they need, they also don't mm-hmm. tell you what you didn't do well. Well, I can't fix it. I can't make it better if I don't know what that is. So, yeah. but it's a, it's a confrontation and like, I'm not very good at that. And I've dealt with some people who only tell you the negative constantly. And it's like, well, then why am I even here? Like so far you've hated everything I've done. So <laughs> great. Thanks. I feel really good about being here. So it's, yeah, a balance, like give me some good things, give me some bad things. Maybe we can talk through them, give examples instead of just being like, good job 
Yeah. And I think, <laughs> I think this is something that's different also between opera and theater and in terms of switching back and forth is just the time frame of performances. Hmm. Because if you're, if you're in opera and you have your performance period is much shorter, you're much closer to whatever your burnout period of tech was when tensions were probably high and you were probably doing yes. the most punting of this is not what I expected. This is not what we talked about. Now we have to problem solve. Okay. Yes. Now we're on the other side of that and we only have three performances. We only have six performances mm-hmm. and now I go to my next thing. Um, whereas in theaters, you might have three weeks of performances Or maybe you only have two weeks of performances and they're only four shows a week, but you have a little more time to see the finished product um, and evaluate how did I get to this point? Knowing where we are now, what might we have done differently? You have more time and I think a more relaxed environment to have conversations with people. And not be Um, so stressed about it. Yeah. Because I think the timing is... um, is pretty important. I think it was last fall, everything blends together. Um, the human resources department at Washington National Opera did a great workshop for staging staff on difficult conversations. Wonderful. Um, and it was really, it was really great. It was targeted to us and it walked through like, what are things that automatically make us label this a difficult conversation? Um, and what are the things that we do to prepare for them? What's our decision-making process when we decide not to engage in them? And I also, I really appreciated that they said, sometimes not engaging them is a correct decision, <laughs> right? Based on the trade-off. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I found it really healthy just to be said. And something that we talked about was, you know, we do a show and then we leave. Yeah. If it, or we do a show and people have moved on to the next thing or you'll see it repeated. But the timing of our work is not like other businesses. It changes the dynamics a lot. Um, it was a really lovely seminar. Um, and we talked a lot about the different, um, talking about, you know, difficult situations and how do we, how do we address them in the moment or afterwards or to ourselves? Um, if you're interested in this at all, I highly recommend yes. the book, Difficult Conversations and How to Have Them. I was just going to um, say, somebody just told me about that book. from there, but a lot of the same ideas. That's amazing. Oh, it's and really I, good. I, we have, um, we just put together a bookcase for the Stage Managers Association. And I was like, I want books that are relevant, but not specific stage management. And that's when that came up because they're like, well, this is something that we all need to deal with. Yeah, Difficult Conversations. Well, this one's called Difficult Conversations, yeah. How to Discuss like, What Matters Most. Sounds yep. so yeah. wonderful. That, and the other one that I love um, that is less known is called, um, oh my goodness, it's, I'm going to blank on it. Um, beyond, mm-hmm, <laughs> beyond Emotion, maybe. Oh, um, okay. Maybe Beyond Emotion, I I'll look it up and get it back to you. Um, But it looks at when you're upset at something or situations, particularly in work, which core concern is not being met and what things do you have control over versus what things do your employers have control over. And I've found that really useful in navigating Mm -hmm. things. That sounds, Um, yeah. Why am I... 
it's good. I wish I'm not sitting near my bookcase at the moment. Um, <laughs> but that's a great, I'm, I'm, I love all of these things. Um, I love all of these books because I think they're really useful for looking at what are the structures that we don't question. Um, and I think that's a really good lens to look at in committee work, whether that's equity committees or AGMA area committees, um, the board of governors, but what are the circumstances that we have control over and what are we not? And what are we ultimately trying to accomplish? Like what, like let's zoom out, do some big blue sky thinking and not get hung up on, on the nose and the problems, but really look at the whys. Why mm-hmm. are we trying to do this? Um, and I think once you engage in that, you can have some really interesting solutions bubble up. Yeah, that's one thing I've been trying with this whole, you know, pandemic and everybody staying home and are any of us going back to a world of theater and at what point and how soon and how's it going to change is, okay, but what what can we do now to hopefully affect it? Like what things right. can we put into place that, okay, maybe we have more hand sanitizers or maybe... Um, I don't know, we start providing masks for people or maybe, you know, what, what are we, what can we do now to try to help get our world back to where we need it to be, where we can actually go to a theater. Right. But but I think the bigger picture though would also be what is it that we want to hold on to and what is it that we're okay with having change right now or not change which is what I've been talking exactly. about, you know, like you said, the bigger picture, okay, well, we're not going to go back to exactly how it was, but how can we go back to what we want or like to, to make those changes? I, I haven't read either of these books. I'm going to add them to my list, but I have a degree in psychology. So I still read a whole bunch of like um, behavior psychology, but just psychology in general, which is yes. I think essential for stage managers as well. And probably for a lot of negotiating because it, I try to, think about consequences, but also try to put myself in other people's shoes. You know, like, uh, yes, I'm advocating for myself and for singers, but if I were on the other side of the table, what does that mean? And how can I think like them in order to, you know, better, better negotiate for myself and for those people that I believe in? And it's so much about psychology. You used a word earlier, which I can't remember right now, but what were you saying about difficult conversations? Oh, about how I forget what the name of the book was that I read recently, but that's pretty much what it was talking about, how there's certain aspects or certain words that come up that just automatically make you tense or make you not want to have that conversation. And then you don't necessarily listen to the rest of the question or you just kind of like stop paying attention because you're already tense and how to let that go and to have that difficult conversation and not put it in your head that you already know what's going to happen and you're already going to get angry and you already know that, you know, everyone's going to scream at each other, you know, and you get that out of your head and, and actually have the conversation. And it's, it's helpful when that happens because (laughs) I do notice after reading that book, I'm like, oh yeah, that grouping of words makes me angry. So how do I not let that grouping of words make me angry anymore? Yeah. It's all of those mindfulness techniques of noticing I'm mm -hmm. tensing up. My breathing has changed. My thinking and my ability to respond appropriately has changed because now I am in a stress place, which is part Mm -hmm. of when we label things. I think this comes up in negotiations a lot. Um, But when we label, put things, you know, capital letters, difficult conversations, 
we're already geared up for what does not necessarily need to be combative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Your body kind of goes into the fight or flight stance automatically. As opposed to this is a conversation where we're talking about how to get the best product possible, which means we need to have the best possible working conditions so that we feel safe creating this work. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think the mindfulness of recognizing what are those words that, <laughs> that, that, that shift my approach is really important to take the time to notice those for yourselves. Or if you get, or if you have the privilege of working with a team for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, they'll tell you, I have yes. an ASM who just will look at me sometimes and say, Leslie, <laughs> breathe. <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, Beyond Reason is the name of that book. Beyond oh, Reason. Something about emotion. Beyond, Beyond Reason. Roger Fisher. Yeah. Danielle Shapiro. Yep. Nice. Okay. Yeah, it's the same group that did Getting to Yes and Difficult Conversations. Um, all good stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, those are all great things. I love that you said mindfulness. I also do a lot of... Yeah. Well, mindful meditation um and that's one mm-hmm. big thing you know the, where you where you notice your body you notice your breathing you notice and you name it you call it out and just kind of like accept yeah. it and, and move on and I found that helps so much in difficult conversations or as a stage manager when you hit a difficult situation or tech and everybody else is already stressed and you don't want to add to that stress and so you're like okay you know, my, my heart rate's up a little bit, or I notice that their palms are sweaty. And so how do we bring the situation down? There's just all these, yes. all these things <laughs> that help a stage manager that's difficult. Okay, so used in real life all the time. <laughs> all the time, all the time, they are useful things. You said something else about unions earlier and negotiations, and I should have written it down because it like came and went. Yeah, it might come back to me. We'll see. I don't know. Um, we did, I shifted us off track because I love talking about this stuff. But um, <laughs> one of your questions was, how did, I, <laughs> how did I get involved in the AGMA Board of Governors? Yeah. Um, and that was, so at the start of my second season at Washington National Opera, there was, there was a vacancy. And so the way that AGMA Board of Governors is structured is there are, I think there's 77 governors and they're split up around the different areas and they're broken down by um, soloist, uh, choristers, dancers, and uh, production staff. And so there was an open production staff seat for the Washington, Baltimore area. And, and some of the folks in the on the Washington area committee and in um, and working at WNO, they had heard me talk about equity things. They had heard me talk about the BLO negotiation, and they knew that I just kept asking questions about why is this in the contract? How does this work? What's the story behind <laughs> this? How is you know this is different? <laughs> and, and I think it was probably Laura Krause who was the first one to say, you know, Leslie, <laughs> there's an opening and you, it sounds like you 
would be interested. <laughs> it sounds in like this. that's perfect for you. It sounds like. Um, and at first I was like, yeah, I don't know. I feel I'm new. I just said, yeah, you know, you would bring a different perspective because of your equity work and you're new. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you ask questions. And I was like, well, what does it entail? She said, well, the because she had been on it before. Um, and Lynn Krinicky had also been on it before. And so it was wonderful to be around people who had done it before that I could say, what's it really like? Yeah. And yeah, how long there was the someone and else. How much paperwork and how much time. Yes, exactly. When, you, when you say one meeting, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and there was also one of our chorus members, Keith Craig. He had just joined recently. And so I was able to go up to him and say, hey, as a new person, what's it like trying to get up to speed and understand things, right? Because the trajectory of just trying to get hop in in the middle of conversations is difficult sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought about it. I talked to a bunch of people. Um, and eventually I said, yes, yes, I am interested in doing this. And so they sent my name to the area committee and they approved me and then sent uh, sent my name up to the board of governors and they, um, they approved my name and I joined in January. So it's still very new, but it's a very oh. interesting time to be joining anything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Um, and so I've been, so it's been two years of going to, you know, area meetings when they happen in Washington and talking to people there about what are the issues, getting to know the different companies um, and the the public area meetings, which I think are fascinating. And it's one of those things I'm like, this is so different from how equity does things. Mm-hmm. And, and now that I'm on the board, I call into the area, um, the area committee which is really wonderful just to get a feel for what do they, how are they thinking about things? What are the issues that may or may not come up to the board of governors in in those monthly calls? Because it also means that um, when other areas present things, I know that they've been talked about in similar sessions. Mm -hmm. And, and that's that at this point, it it is a crazy time to be joining. Um, And I will say I have zero background in dance. Um, so I've been doing a lot of education on my own. <laughs> for what, any, you know, anytime a concession request comes up or a waiver request comes up for a dance company, it's like, okay, why is that important? Why might companies be asking for that? Like, what are, why is this a thing that we protect in the contracts? And some are immediately apparent and some I really have to go digging through, which is why the area committee is great to say, I don't understand this. That's amazing. I, yeah, I wouldn't know how to answer anything for dance. I'm just now learning orchestras because I've had to spend mm. the last two summers working with orchestras and had so many things to her arm. I love them now, <laughs> but you know, it was kind of, um, uh, learning sinkers. Yeah. Sinker swim kind of thing. And, you know, in, in opera, we spend so much time, not with orchestra and you just hear about AF of M and their rules and you know yeah you don't necessarily know why certain things are the way they are and you kind of get this negative feeling around them you know and and especially with crew and and performers backstage not knowing why orchestras need what they need and you just kind of consider them divas and 
So it wasn't until I actually started working with them. And thankfully, most of them were very nice to like answer all of my really ridiculous questions. Like, why do we have to do this? You know, and they, they didn't make fun of me too much, but then they started answering right. my questions and, you know, they're like, you're very curious. And I was like, well, I don't know. I've never had to deal with this. And right. now there's so much that I feel like I know that I can now answer. So when I go to other companies and I'm an opera stage manager, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, let's not give the orchestra a hard time about this because these are the six reasons why they have to have this. They're not just being mm-hmm. divas about it, you know, and, and I feel like I can communicate better with crew and opera companies because I know orchestra and I feel like dance would be the same way because so many operas, not that a lot of companies can afford it now, but a lot of operas were written with dance in mind and a lot of them have at least one ballet in them or something that includes dancers that I feel like knowing how to how a ballet company works or why they need certain things would just make it easier all around for us right but one of one of my early PS, I think my first big PSM contract after graduating college was with Boston Early Music Festival um, and early music is its own subgenre of opera mm-hmm. well, I do no <laughs> music so it's a little bit past early music but it's yeah. still its own and this was a company that we started with, you know, two harpsichords, a theorbo and a viola de gamba in rehearsal. And so mm-hmm. we just had the continuo with us. And people kept talking about, you know, the continuo space and the continuo this. And I was <laughs> yes. like, what is this thing? That what is up? a continuo? <laughs> what is happening? Um, and we just, and we sort of added musicians by the day as we got closer to tech until we basically had the full orchestra in the rehearsal room with us mm-hmm. and it was a fascinating thing first of all because you know early instruments are really they're just interesting and they're beautiful but they're also fragile <laughs> and so we cared a lot about <laughs> yeah the, you know the temperature of the room and how yes. much space people you know protecting their space mm-hmm. because this is how much I learned a lot that would come through later as I did, you know, shows that are staged around an orchestra. And they're like, well, this is the pit plot. I was like, I know that's the pit plot, but let's think about like the Boeing space. Like, I yes, I know that that's the people. space, but <laughs> like for real, we have to take into account the Boeing space and, mm-hmm. you know, the extra pieces around them of equipment, just because that's their chair, they're going to take up more room and we can't resent them for it because that's what they need to do their job. Yeah. It's just what you're saying, expanding in- your perspective. Yeah. Then where are they putting their cases and how close right. are their cases to them? And are they on the floor or on a table? And yeah, yeah. all of those, coming all of those things that just... I feel like in theater, there's always other areas where you'll be on a show and be like, I have never had to think about this before. And now let's expand and let me go back and go, (laughs) oh, I would have asked, you know, I would have asked questions differently that time. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love that. I love the constant learning. And then you'll go back to something nice and easy. And you're like, okay, this is my mental break where I get to, you know, (laughs) my brain can reset for a little. And here we go. Now I'm ready. Now I'm ready to... To dive into it, girl. Yeah, <laughs> that was my last show. It was supposed to be my mental break because I was doing it. I was ASMing for the first time in years, but it was on a semi-stage concert. You know, our uh, yes. we had five props, and our entire preset and running for Aida was one page. You know, it was a very difficult show. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is my mental break. Now is when I can step back and like reassess and re-remember how to do this, and you know, learn these things that I, yeah. you know 
or put put things that I've learned into action now because it's a smaller piece and not stress about it so much. <laughs> but, yeah, so. and I, the smaller pieces are great for testing out new ways to do paperwork. Yes, yeah. When they're like, what is this new format that someone taught me or this new computer program? And I don't oh, want to test it with programs. a 40-page preset, but I'll test yes. it with a five, you know, with a five-item one. Yes. Yeah, let's do, let's, let's test that out. And also, like, if it's terrible, no harm, no foul, because I can whip it up on my normal template in a minute. Yeah, I was trying to or do just it live my, with it. Or just live with it. <laughs> I was trying to switch up my uh, actor queuing because I, I usually just call shows, you know, and so I don't necessarily write down everything that I need to send an actor on stage and, or a singer on stage, you know, mm -hmm. so I was, I was playing with different things during rehearsal to figure out what I liked best and how to do it, which again, if I was doing a huge opera, I would have never had the chance to do that, but because chorus never came off stage and it was just the principles, I had a chance to play around with different techniques and saw what worked for me, which was pretty awesome. It's good times. We all like three people you had to cue on stage, one of them twice. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very difficult show. <laughs> and he still missed his staff. Well, you get Go complacent. Ahead. You get complacent when yes. you have so few props because then you're like, oh, I'm fine. And then you kind of stop thinking about it. When you have a million props, you're always like, you're like, I need that checklist. You're always prepared. Yeah. But when you're like, oh, it's fine. There's only five of them. Then that's when you miss something. <laughs> and yep. lesson learned. Yeah. <laughs> And back Stop. to the lessons learned. Yeah. Don't get complacent. Uh, we're getting close to an hour, which is sad because I'm enjoying this conversation so much. We might have to bring you back after you've been on the board for a while and you could tell us tell us all the new things you've learned. And uh, I would love that. And, and how things have, have progressed through the pandemic once we get to the other side. So our, our last question, which we did not give you much warning for, was do you have any twin stories to leave with? Twin stories. Okay. There are twins in my extended family. Oh, my, nice. Yeah, my grandmother on my dad's side, she had a twin sister. Um, they were Lida and Lydia. So it was grandmother and Aunt Diddy. And they, by the time I was born, they lived in neighboring houses, you know, yes. yards adjoining. And they and they're identical twin, or they were identical twins. And they would they would dress alike sometimes intentionally but a lot of times accidentally they, you know, they would just <laughs> show up places in the exact same outfit um so we have we have all kinds of twin stories um and and when I was little I just I could not tell them apart and it was so stressful going to Arkansas to visit them you know when they came when grandmother and granddad came to visit us it was fine because it was only ever grandmother one of them yeah um, but when we were in arkansas and would go in the room <laughs> hi which one are you and i wouldn't really know until they spoke their voices were were you know same rhythm same pattern same language um but the tone was just different enough that i knew who they were when i was older it got much much easier um interesting even though they they looked identical until till the day they died um and my and then it skipped my dad and his siblings, um, but my cousins are, are uh, when I was little, I thought they were identical, but as they grow up now, I'm like, no, they just looked alike. They were fraternal. 
Um, <laughs> so Jill and yeah, you know, when you're little, you're like, oh my god, the big glamorous cousins, yes. exactly the same. And now I'm like, no, Jill and Janet look very different. <laughs> um, so those are those are my family twins, and I know a lot of actors actually who are twins. And when I was teaching, there were students who had who had twin siblings, which I always thought was really fun. I love seeing pictures of people with their, with their, their identical siblings. Um, it just, it cracks me up because then I get to play the guessing game. Like, where are you? Oh, yeah. we do do I know that. just by the picture? Um, we still and... do that. We do that with our spouses. <laughs> yeah. Which oh, I'll bet. I don't know. Might be, um, might be me. So Lynn Krenicki at Washington National, she of course is, is, a, twin. is a twin. I was going to and... ask you that. Have you worked with both of them? I have not. I have never met Jill. Um, okay. Recently, we were having we were having a little stage manager chat, and she was on she was on a video call, um, and so that was the first time that I saw Jill. And I was like, "What? Yeah, we it is identical." <laughs> and like when I was not looking at the script, like when I was looking somewhere else in the room, and the, I was like, "That is that is Lynn's voice and Lynn's <laughs> language. Like those are Lynn's words coming out." I was like, "This is hilarious." Um, and I was a little glad. Um, full confession, I was a little glad that it was that Jill was on a video screen because otherwise I would have been staring in what would have been, you know, socially rude. <laughs> you can sca- stare at people on the screen and you're like, dude, there's like eight of you right in front of me. What is happening? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I look forward to to meeting her someday. I've not met either of them. We keep saying that we need to contact them and have them both on the podcast at the same time so that we oh, can just talk about like stage management and twins. That would be awesome, but I haven't actually. And that think... would be a fun game for everyone to try and identify which one of them was talking at the time. <laughs> yeah, I had someone tell talk me... to Kelly and Kim Linux. Linux. Yeah. They're twins. They work in like costumes, hair, and makeup on Broadway. And so the four of us had a conversation. I think half of it was just about, hey, do people ask you and do you get confused and just twin stuff? And then sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, theater. We should talk about that. <laughs> but twin <laughs> stuff is so much fun. We have, do you know what we're doing? Well, I'm doing, I set up a thing tomorrow night at 7.30 Eastern time, I think. Um, just like a Zoom hangout with opera stage managers. I should fun. send it to both of them to be on but if you're available you should come hang out because I haven't like hung out with stage managers in so long it seems and I was like yeah. can you guys come all hang out on zoom with me for a while so that I can see people I'm tired of just meetings yeah but we need to get them on so it'll be cool you have a lot of twin stories I like it yeah. <laughs> well it's not when they're in your family but also a lot came out when when aunt diddy died she died first and then when grandma died you know we all sit around and sh- and share the twin stories mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, sure just like, generations of sharing the twin stories having it yeah how far apart were their deaths um a couple years but not oh. I mean, I mean, really, maybe only two or three years. It was not a lot. Yeah, I don't know if we could last two or three years without the other one. Yeah, yeah, they friends all both... the time. But yeah, especially if they lived right next door to each other, like that's just. Mm-hmm. Well, our mom's stepmom is a twin, and they mm-hmm. the same thing. They lived right next door to each other, and 
when did Janet died? A couple of years ago couple now. Years. But like yeah. suddenly, like she was fine. And then the next day, like, I think it was a stroke and she was gone. Mm. But yeah, Stacy and I talk about it all the time. We're like, well, if one goes, the husband's got to know that the other one's going soon. We're not going to last long without the other one. So yeah. And grandma, grandmother was very, very organized. She's a very organized person in general, but very organized about her death. Um, there were no questions. She did not want to be a burden, but in all of her like notes and things, um, there was no record of like what she wanted to be buried in. She had talked to people about the service and, when, and so everyone was like, what on earth? And we're like, well, what was Diddy buried in? Hmm. And sure enough, that matching outfit was set aside in her closet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she figure it out. Yeah, exactly. She's like, I don't need to write this down because they're all going to know. And and they did. <laughs> that is so cool. They, yeah, they were uh, they were a pretty special set of sisters. That's awesome. That gives me something to look forward to. Stace, we got to make sure we look good in the same thing. So, okay. Or not look good in the same thing. You know, like that could be entertaining. I mean, it's death, so. It's <laughs> <laughs> like the most, the most hideous thing we can think of. We're like, well, at least people will be entertained at the funeral. <laughs> we, not weird we, at all. <laughs> we're not morbid. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for joining us. This is usually Stacy and I talk a lot more, but this was yeah, just so I interesting. Said, like, nothing. And which is unusual. You usually don't stop talking. So it was uh, it was still great. We are gonna have to have you back on at uh, once the pandemic's over and, and to see how things go with with all of the committees that you're on. Um, yeah. I know you're very active with real world politics as well. So hopefully we'll have positive things to talk about in the next couple of months. Um, that would be good. Fingers crossed. Everything goes well. Um, but thank you so much. This was really wonderful. Yeah, I'm, thanks I'm for so inviting me. This was a delight. So much fun. Well, hopefully I'll be able to see you in person one day. We'll, we'll meet up. We'll yeah. be best friends already. So it'll be wonderful. Do and a show together. Everyone would be so organized. I know that mm-hmm, would be fun. Mm-hmm. Always the joy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, and I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Title music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of IncomTech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.